awareness is a lifestyle. And usually, or most often during this retreat, when we use the word mindfulness or awareness, we use them synonymously. Talking about a mindfulness or awareness being the same thing. But tonight I want to distinguish the mental factor of sati, usually translated as mindfulness, from the activity of awareness. And awareness is, as I'm going to talk about it tonight, the activity of five mental factors. Sati, or mindfulness, is only one of them. So tonight, we have to build in this understanding. Clearly, we can see, even in the course of the few days of this retreat, we can see that if we come with sincerity and some confidence and some make some effort, uh, there is a momentum apparent even within a few days of practice. So imagine extrapolating the effort of the last few days into the rest of your life and you could see or you could imagine that there would be quite a momentum of awareness and the resultant benefits of that. And this is something that we should do, actually, because Sayadaw Tejaniya says that we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom more as a marathon than a sprint. And it will take the rest of your life to learn to live with this life. So the way I'm going to speak about um, awareness is as the activity of the what are called the five spiritual faculties. And these five faculties are sadha, usually translated as faith, virya, usually translated as effort or energy, sati, usually translated as mindfulness, samadhi, usually translated as concentration, but I prefer collectedness, and panya, usually translated as wisdom or understanding. As we begin our practice and move along in our practice, these five factors grow incrementally through a cause-effect relationship, meaning with faith, we're willing to make some effort. Effort is the cause of mindfulness or remembering. Remembering or the continuity of mindfulness results in samadhi or collectedness of mind. And it is the collected mind that sees and understands things with more clarity, wisdom. When we get some wisdom or we see, oh, this is the way it is for me, we have more faith in ourselves. We have more faith in the practice. We have more faith in the whole process that we've undertaken. And we make more effort, more mindfulness, more concentration, more wisdom. And gradually and cyclically, through this uh, incremental uh, increase, we grow in faith. We grow in balanced effort. We grow in continuity of remembering to be present. 
We grow in stability of mind or collectedness of mind. And we grow in wisdom or understanding. And the Buddha said, there is no limit to how collected the mind can become. And there's no limit to what the mind can know. So, how can we ever finish? And yet we can see, even in a few days, that this is the way it does seem to unfold. So I want to speak about each of these factors so that you can begin to monitor them in your practice. Some you can work with directly, some you'll see as a collateral uh, result of practice. Nevertheless, it's helpful to hear of them, uh, understand their nature, natures, and to begin to recognize them in your practice. So the first of these spiritual faculties is called sadha, usually translated as faith. But faith in action, in our practice. And this is how we have to look at it, not as a noun, like faith, got it or don't, but rather as a verb in our practice, it is the activity of trusting. When we, when we come to practice, trusting ourselves, trusting our interest, trusting the teacher, trusting what we've read or what we know of practice and being willing to invest that trust in the practice, then we are acting on our faith. So we should see that this faith is actually a living, dynamic uh, quality in our mind, in our heart. And it's not just something you either have or don't. So when we look at trusting, we can see that, and I'm sure some of you have seen, that there are times during the day or some, some experiences you have a lot of trust, a lot of confidence, a lot of enthusiasm, quite willing to look and make the effort and extend yourself. And there's other times when you just don't feel like it's not working and I don't have any faith and what's for lunch anyway and is it time to take a nap or whatever. We just kind of cave. So we can see that it's not a on or off thing. It's not a have it or don't have it. It's a dynamic thing that we can work with in our life, in our practice, and we can see it grow if we keep an eye on it. So, some of you know the story, but I'll just give you a shorthand. In, after graduating from college, university, and going to law school, I was living in a commune uh, in central Maine, recovering from all that education. And uh, the reason we were all together in this commune is because we were, you know, fans of the Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd. And so we were living the lifestyle that is appropriate for fans of those groups and <laughs> partaking of the sacrament as necessary. And that was my spiritual practice. So, but one day, one of the women in the commune had gotten a book called Beginning to See, little one-liners about mindfulness. And she read the book and <clears throat> wrote to inquire about this thing called mindfulness. And this was in 75, 1975. And I was told that there was a retreat going on just a, a couple hours from where we lived in central Maine. 
and that the last two weeks of this three-month retreat was going to be open to new students. So she said she was going to this thing that I thought she said was like a resort. (laughs) So I didn't know anybody who meditated. I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I wasn't interested in spiritual practice. I was interested in the Grateful Dead. And um, so the day came. We went down, and we went to this old Catholic monastery on the, on the shore and uh, walked in, and on one side was the dining room, the other side was the chapel, and on the door of the chapel was the schedule. You know, wake up at 4.30, do your yoga, walk, whatever, uh, sit, breakfast, sit, walk, sit, walk, lunch, sit, walk, sit, walk, tea, sit, walk, 7.30, talk, you know, sit, walk, go to bed. So we looked at each other and said, wow, this this is what we're going to be doing for two weeks? You know, but at least we get an hour a day to talk. (laughs) Really. (laughs) What I meant was we got an hour a day to listen. But nevertheless, there we were, and everybody was walking around because they'd been there for two and a half months already. And it was cold. They're all wrapped up in blankets. They're all looking at the floor, shuffling around like zombies. You know, and nobody was telling us anything. They weren't talking. So we thought, okay, right. Anyway, I sat up back, leaned against the piano, and it was excruciating hell for two weeks because my body was not used to sitting still, cross-legged, or any other way, and my mind was definitely not ready for self-observation. So it was torturous. And uh, I think you know what I mean. But there was one thing in that whole retreat that really caught my attention, and that was the talks at night. Because Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and another fellow who's since deceased were the teachers of the first three-month retreat that was held there. And they were talking about the Dharma. And they were, you know, talking about the mindfulness and Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path and Five Factors and Seven Factors of Awakening and and the usual topics that you hear on Dharma, on uh, retreats. And when I heard them, it was as if I heard for the first time what I'd always known to be true. I'd never heard it, I'd never read it, but when I did hear it, it was like I had no argument with it at all. It was like, of course, of course, yeah, that's the way it is. I knew that. And that was the spark that just kind of propelled me into Dharma practice and Dharma service, really. Because as soon as they bought the meditation center to, to IMS to start it, then I and Carol and others went on staff and have been kind of in the Dharma orbit since then. So I didn't realize what had happened to me. It just kind of changed my life. Not overnight, it was a transition, but it was really the awakening of faith, the awakening of trust. And it's said that faith, or this sadha, has the uh, objective of clarifying our spiritual direction. And I think that's what awoken me. It's like I heard these talks and I realized, oh, that's, that's the direction I want to go. And it is said that faith or this kind of 
ignition, the spark in the, in the mind or in the heart, seeks the good. That's its direction. Faith seeks the good, the wholesome. And I think I saw and felt in the practice, even though I couldn't do it, I couldn't sit still for a minute, I, didn't watch, I couldn't watch my mind, I didn't know anything about anything. Nevertheless, something felt worthy of doing. And I think even with that first retreat, I just realized this is it. This, this, is, this is it for this life. This is what I'm doing. And returned to the commune. And we'd been away two weeks in silence. Go back to the commune, and everybody is just doing the same old thing they ever were. And so we, you know, there was a very familiar, and we kind of looked around and we said, wow, we were seeing it from a totally different perspective than when we left. We were seeing it from a Dharma perspective, a perspective of awareness and direction in life. And we didn't have any direction in life, living on the commune, living in the commune. We were just there, you know, be here now. That's it. That was the extent of it. But we looked at this, you know, our friends, and we just said, this doesn't, we don't belong here. You know, I mean, we, we, we were friends, but there was something that just said, this is not really how I want to live. And there was, you know, it began a transition that took a few years before we finally left the commune and was more involved with the Dharma. Not only does the sadha like that clarify our spiritual uh, direction or spiritual objective, it gives us an aspiration to proceed. We, we see that it's possible and we can aspire to this goodness more than we can even understand, I think. You know, so we feel motivated, we feel excited sometimes, we feel enthusiastic, we feel devotional, we feel all kinds of things that, well, our personal demeanor our, uh, is clarified. We, we feel clearer and we feel more confident, we feel more open. There's some, even before we practice much, bright faith is like that. It can really uh, change the way you see things. But the interesting thing about Sada or faith is it doesn't rely on knowledge. You don't really have to know what you have faith in. I mean, you feel it, you feel something, but, you know, I, Rodney Smith, who's another uh, person I met on the staff at the meditation center when I went to work there, reminded me a few years ago that we had a conversation like the first day I was there working, and I'd only done one two week retreat. <clears throat> we were upstairs in the attic. Uh, insulating the ceiling of one of the dormitories, we were having a we were having a discussion of nibbana, as if we knew anything about nibbana. <laughs> but I said to him, he reminded me that I said with absolute utter conviction, I have no doubt that I will realize the Dharma in this lifetime. I had no idea what I was saying. I didn't know what was involved. I didn't know anything about anything, but I knew it was possible. That's faith. As we get into practice, practice will challenge that faith, as you have discovered. 
you may have a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of interest, a lot of belief, a lot of faith in yourself, your practice, your teachers, whatever. But when you get right down to it and you start paying attention to this mind and body, it, it doesn't look like the books, what it says in the books. It looks like a mess. <laughs> and and uh, there's a lot of experiences to challenge our faith. You know, where we lose heart, where we, we lose direction, we lose uh, confidence. And we can borrow confidence from our teachers or we can read a book and we can gain some, you know, uh, borrowed confidence, enough to keep practicing. But we should understand that you cannot think yourself out of doubt. It, doubt paralyzes the mind from practicing. And if you think and try to logically, rationally, overcome doubt, you just tie yourself up in knots. And you can't think yourself out of doubt. But you can practice yourself out of doubt. If you keep practicing, if you follow the instructions, if you follow the guidance of the the practice, you can work with doubt and all of its manifestations. And I will acknowledge and confirm to you that the first part of practice... The first, journey, the first milestone, if you will, on the uh, journey to awakening is to overcome doubt. And so we have to practice and expect that in the practice we are going to expose every filament of doubt we have. Doubt about ourselves, our own capacity, doubt about the teachers, doubt about the practice, doubt about the efficacy of the practice, doubt about the Buddha, doubt about the Dharma, doubt about the Sangha. We're going to expose every doubt that you can imagine before we're going to arrive at the place of unshakable confidence. That's the direction. And so we really do need someone who can relate to that level of doubt. Someone who has seen that doubt themselves, has worked through that doubt, has worked not around it, hasn't spiritually bypassed it, hasn't kind of avoided it, hasn't kind of just kind of uh, mainlined the book, but they've actually done the work of confronting that doubt in their own mind, in their own heart, and found a way to accommodate it, to work with it, to work through it, to change our understandings, if you will. So this transition from doubt to faith, or doubt to confidence, is a large part, or I should say, is something that we go through gradually as we uh, make our, make our, do our practice. My journey, once I had awoken to the path, the practice, was to clean up my act, my sila, because my sila was not good. You know, living in the commune wasn't good. It was compromised. And that was the direction that my practice went for the first few years was just, you know, detoxing of all of that so that I could actually hear the Dharma and practice Dharma and monitor my own heart out from under the clouds of confusion that were rampant. With that doubt, with that faith, I should say, I was willing to make effort. I was willing to serve on the as uh, on the staff of the retreat center, attended all the Dharma talks, went to all the retreats, just made as much effort as possible to get the Dharma, to practice the Dharma, to be with other Dharma friends, 
And this is because of the faith. Not because I was any great meditator or wise. It wasn't that at all. It was just I wanted what faith was pointing me to, the spiritual compass, so to speak. And I could always align myself with the Dharma being on staff at the retreat center. So it is said that in order to arouse that kind of energy, you need some kind of urgency. You might have faith, plenty of faith, what you've read, what you've heard, who you've met, and yet not really get down to practicing, generating the energy to practice. And it's said that the proximate cause for effort, making effort, is samvega. And samvega is called spiritual urgency. There has to be some urgency to practice your faith. Otherwise, you just have faith and it's just kind of dormant and you don't actually do anything with it. And so this urgency can be anything for anyone, really. Sometimes, you know, we have great suffering in our life. Sometimes we're shocked by the death of a parent or a friend. Uh, Sometimes we just uh, realize that our life is going nowhere and we feel some urgency to get on, get on with it. This samvega, this urgency to practice is what the bodhisattva, Prince Siddhartha, felt, recognized when he left his father's palaces or enclaves and went out into the world and saw, meaning he understood aging, sickness, and death. And that so moved him. It's just when he finally, when he grokked it, like, this happens, and this happens to everyone, and it's going to happen to me. He was so, like, infused with his karmic commitment, aspiration to awaken, that there was no hesitation. That was what he had to do. So each one of us, too, has our own little spiritual urgencies, whatever it is for you to to get to a retreat, to continue to retreat. And it's not like we have just one spiritual urgency and then we work at it for the rest of our life. It's like it comes around regularly. You work with one, you work with another, and at different ages and at different places in practice, something else comes up as, got to get on with it. I was doing a self-retreat a couple of years ago when I turned 66, and I was just doing a self-retreat, you know, I'm very familiar with self-retreats at home. But something, it, it just arose in my mind, like, 66. You know, time is running out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the far horizon is getting nearer quicker. And I realized that I had, you know, I had devoted the last 40 years to the Dharma. And yet, it wasn't finished. And there was a sense of, you know, I had a lot of confidence in the confidence in the Dharma and a lot of um, trust, a lot of understanding, a lot of joy in the Dharma, practicing the Dharma, sharing the Dharma. And yet, there wasn't quite the urgency that I felt was going to was was 
re- reflective of my commitment to awaken. And that was all it took. It was just like, you know what? I don't think I've, I'm not, but I didn't have to think about it. As soon as I recognized it, it was like back. And it was like, okay, what's, what is left to do in this lifetime, really? And for those of you this age, and a lot of younger ones, and I'm glad to see you all here, you might not reflect this way, but I certainly do, and I can imagine many of you my age do. It's like, what's, what, what really is left to do in this life? What's really important now? We've done the you know, career thing, and we've done the family thing, and we've done whatever we're going to do with that in this life. And, uh, yeah, what next? How many more accomplishments, achievements, merit badges, life merit badges do we have to get before we realize that, and really accept the, accept the knowledge of our commitment to the Dharma and awakening. And further that, making the effort to follow our spiritual direction and aspiration and having the confidence to do that. It is said that energy, or virya, manifests as non-collapse. And what that means is that when we're making effort to practice, in our practice, we inevitably run up against challenges, difficulties. You know, pain in the body, emotional pain, uh, confusion, doubt, uh, all kinds of limitate, personal limitations of our understanding, our ability to practice the way we want to practice. And if we aren't monitoring the energy or our effort, we'll come up against you know, some seemingly immovable obstacle and we'll collapse. We'll just you know, deflate and that's going to pull a plug on our practice. And so we can watch in our practice, even as you just sit here for 45 minutes, you know, when you, when you get to some place in practice or you're, you're looking at some experience or you're up against you know, your restless mind or your achy body or your dullness or whatever it is, and you just... That's called collapsing. And right then, we just aren't sustaining the energy. We lose the momentum of remembering to recognize the present moment. And the, the, the momentum just seeps out. So really, it, it's keeping an eye on not collapsing, even though the difficulties, the challenges, painful, frustrating, frightening, whatever it is, keep learning how to. Now, the Buddha spoke maybe most about right effort, more than any other topic in all of his discourses. More than, you know, mindfulness and nibbana and enlightenment and freedom and all that stuff. Why? Well, because it's all about establishing, arousing and establishing a balanced effort. And there are so many ways to not be balanced in our effort. And we'll try them all. We'll try them all. We'll all try too hard, striving, and we'll all try to kind of like cruise to the finish line. You know, and we'll, we'll have to recognize over and over again, neither one of those is balanced effort. 
but we'll get caught and we'll learn. You know, as Sairotejanita said, you know, mistakes are the stepping stones to wisdom. So make all the mistakes you can, but learn from them because that's the way that wisdom grows. So, right effort. Ramana Maharshi, great sage of the last century in India, he says, no one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. And this, we might understand, is right effort, balanced effort. Patience and perseverance in equal portions. Carlos Castaneda, another one of my great spiritual teachers of the last century, uh, in his teachings from Don Juan, the shaman from Central America, Mexico, he wrote, Don Juan... (coughs) Excuse me. Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion, and that it was absurd. I had now come to realize that I could work just the same in making myself whole, strong, aware. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong, the amount of work is the same. We don't realize how much effort it takes to make ourselves miserable, to, to be upset, to be frustrated, to be disappointed, to be you know, angry and raging, or whatever it is that we do. It takes a tremendous amount of holding on to grudges and fears and views and opinions. And the effort to let go frees us from all that. It'll take the same amount of effort. But as we let go, and everything we let go of releases the energy of holding, which is the energy we need to do the work. Maybe mindfulness practice is the only thing you can make effort at that will result in more energy. Usually when we expend energy doing a task, we get depleted. But if we're practicing correctly and we're confronting our hold where we're holding on, and we're letting go as best we can, when we can, it releases the energy that we've been holding on with, and that energy is now available for practice. It's kind of paradoxical. It's not our usual thing. It's kind of counterintuitive to our usual understanding. But we'll only find out for ourselves by practicing with this understanding. with a spiritual direction, feeling inspired and confident to proceed, making the effort to, with some continuity or sustaining it. In this practice, we cultivate remembering to recognize the present moment. And this is the second or the third of the spiritual faculties, sati, mindfulness. It has the function of remembering. Remembering what? Well, remembering to recognize the present moment. Remembering that, you know, this moment is your life. Your life. This is it. This is the only experience you're going to have of your life in this moment. If you're not there for it, 
Can you honestly say you're alive? You're just sleepwalking. Kind of, you know, as John Lennon said, you know, life is what happens while we're making other plans. This is it. Not a rehearsal. It's never going to come again. This moment will never be offered to you again. Are you willing to live this moment fully? To know it? To be it? To be with it? That's why we have to remember. We have to remember each moment. This is it. This is it. This is it. Well, I was working with, after, after about uh, eight years of uh, doing retreats, Upandita, Saito Upandita, my Burmese teacher, came to America for the first time, to offered a three-month retreat to just 20 students. They were all teachers or trainees to be teachers, except me. I happened to be one of the members of the board at the meditation center, so they let me, they just let me kind of participate too. But they forgot to tell him that. So anyway, I was practicing, and it was grueling. He, he, he could really make you work in a most intense fashion. I mean, just unbelievable. So I was waiting one day to, had to report to him every day, and I was waiting one day to go into report, and his room was just down the hall, and I was standing in the hall to be ready to go in as soon as the other person came out, and I was following a young woman who was really doing well. So one day, she was in there telling Upandita about how many past lives she was remembering and how excited she was, and just remembering that she was living like this and practicing like that, and I was like, oh, wow. So I was like, past lives? What's that all about? But anyway, she came out. She's just kind of floating down the hall. And I go back, I go in, and I kind of was like, I was, you know, I was dealing with pain. So I did my bows, and I just kind of blurted out to Upandita. I says, what, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering past lives or something? <laughs> and he looks at me and said, no, remembering this life. And it's really that simple. It's like all of the spiritual phantasmagoria that you might hear about or read about that others experience or hope to or whatever, really it's about living this life. Being here moment to moment. And that's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is remembering that and then feeling into and intimately connecting with and knowing through, we say observing, but it's not observing with the eyes, it's knowing through your heart's connection with the intimacy of this moment. That's mindfulness. That's the factor of mindfulness. Now, the, the way to cultivate or the proximate cause for mindfulness, there are three. One is, you have to have an object. No object, no mindfulness is possible. No mindfulness, no object. So you have to have an object. That's one of the proximate causes. The second is strong perception. Perception is the ability to recognize the uniqueness of this moment. How is the in-breath different than the out-breath? How is anxiety different than fear? How is frustration different than disappointment? You can only know those differences by feeling into each one of those experiences and knowing its unique flavor. They all have their own unique flavor. That's what mindfulness receives. That's what mindfulness observes. That's what mindfulness comes to know. 
and the more clearly that unique flavor of each moment is recognized, that's perception, the more continuous the mindfulness will be. If you clearly perceive this moment, it supports clearly being mindful the next moment. And the third proximate cause for mindfulness is momentum. If one moment is mindful, it's more likely the next moment will be mindful. So if you get the momentum of remembering and observing going, it takes a while to lose it. But it takes a lot to get it going, as you know. It's like a flywheel. It's like a big flywheel on a bicycle or something. If you, you know, to get those first few pedals going and get the first, you know, it's really hard. But once there's a momentum, you just have to apply a little bit of effort and it keeps going. So this is the way mindfulness works also. It takes a lot to get the momentum of remembering and observing, feeling into, remembering, observing, feeling into, moment after moment after moment, before it kind of has its own momentum. Nevertheless, it's possible, it comes. But we should understand that this mindfulness is not about creating anything. It's not about getting rid of anything. It's not about explaining anything. It's not about analyzing or figuring out. It's not about confirming what you've read in the book. It's not about making something of yourself. It's just remembering to observe the present moment. But so often, as you will, you will see, or have seen probably, all kinds of agendas attach themselves to our efforts. I'm going to figure this out, and I'm going to take care of my mother issues, my father issues, and by the way, I'm going to figure out my career, and whether I want to do the next retreat or not. And you know, if I get really mindful, all those answers should be there. Not. That's not what mindfulness is for. That's not what mindfulness does. But somehow we lay these expectations, we lay these trips on, we lay these agendas on, and we need to remember that no mindfulness is just remembering to observe, to recognize the present moment's experience. Actually, mindfulness, this continuity, this momentum of mindfulness, is not a matter of personal uh, capability. It's not like, I got it, you don't, you got half of it, you got 70%, you got 30%. It's not that way. It is a natural function of the mind to be mindful, and yet it's underdeveloped. And so if the causes and the conditions for mindfulness are aroused, and some of them are practicing with others, hearing the Dharma, having the aspiration, making an effort, all of these are conditions that lead to being mindful. If those causes and conditions are fulfilled, the result will be mindfulness. It's not like you're responsible for it. Yes, you have to do your part. And everyone has the potential of being mindful, being more mindful. You just have to be willing to make the effort. Recognize your faith, make the effort, remember as much as you can, practice with others, hear what right view is, seek support. 
This is the way. This is the way to do it. Imagine if you heard the Dharma, heard, did one retreat, then wandered off for the next 10 years to do your own practice. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. It's too hard. There's too many obstacles. You'd lose faith. You'd forget what's, what you learned. And so it's necessary to kind of keep yourself immersed in the Dharma soup, if you will, whether it's reading or groups or practice or doing retreats. The fourth spiritual factor is called samadhi. Now, samadhi is actually the collectedness of the mind. Sometimes we use the word concentration, but that's, that's misleading. It's really a collectedness of mind. Now, a lot of times we've heard of samadhi and we want samadhi, we want to be concentrated, but we try wrongly because we misunderstand what samadhi is. So let me, let me try to clarify it. Each moment of mindfulness, the mind is free of the torments. Okay? So when, we're, when we are paying attention to the breath and we notice breathing in, and it's like this, it feels like this, breathing out, it feels like that, there's no desire, there's no aversion, there's no self-pity, there's no frustration or depression in that. It's just clearly knowing that's the present moment. And as the present moment without any torments grows as moment after moment of mindfulness grows, then the mind becomes secluded from the torments, right? We just are not... uh, Could somebody please wake him up? (laughs) So we are not uh, tormented by any of these visitors to the mind because we are being aware moment after moment after moment And when the mind is free of the torments, it is secluded, what we call secluded. And it's that feeling of seclusion that is samadhi. Samadhi is that feeling of seclusion where the mind is not susceptible or vulnerable to the arising of the torments. Okay, so really concentration or samadhi or collectedness of mind is a function of the continuity of mindfulness, moments of mindfulness. It's not what you're paying attention to. It's not like you've got to focus on the breath or the, the smallest little sensation of the breath at the nostrils, narrowing your focus to some minute thing to pay attention to. That's not what collects the mind. It's the continuity of attending to whatever has called your attention in this moment secludes the mind from the torments. And that's what samadhi is. So we could say that samadhi collects the mind. Instead of the mind going off and being upset about this and thinking about that and commenting on this and judging that and then coming back to notice another breath and then going off and thinking about this and thinking about that and then coming back to another breath, the mind stays with the breath or the mind stays with not only a single object, but in Vipassana practice, the mind can be aware of anything. It can be with the in-breath, 
It can be with a knee pain. It can be with a thought. It can be with a sound. It can be with an out-breath. It can be... If in each moment the mind is remembering to recognize that experience as it happens, we don't have to stay on one object. We can be checking out all kind, every object, every sense door, what's happening at every sense door. The mind stays secluded because if in each moment there's no torment, the mind is secluded, the mind gets collected, the mind gets unified. Meaning the mind is not thinking about what's be, what it's being aware of. It is actually tasting what, it's being, uh, what is arising in the present moment. Interestingly, it is said that the proximate cause for samadhi is this other mental, this other experience called sukha. Sukha is happy comfort of mind and body. Happy comfort of mind and body. So, in order to support collectedness or unification of mind, make your body and mind happy. Now, when you kind of get really tight and you're just kind of jamming your attention into the breath, just turn it, hang on to that breath, and you know, is your body and mind Comfortable? No. That is not the proximate cause of samadhi. That is the proximate cause of a headache. So, relax. That's why relax your body, which we know how to do, relax your mind, which is let go of any other agenda, is so essential for developing samadhi, for collecting the mind. Yes, there's going to be some of what you're aware of moment to moment is going to be painful. And we have to learn how to kind of be with that pain in a non-contracted way. But that's the work. That's the practice. So it's important that you understand that when we're practicing remembering to recognize the present moment, each moment that we do that, the mind is free of the torments. We say, we call this the pure mind. And the more continuous that pure mind is, the more samadhi or secluded we are. And that's important because samadhi, collectedness of mind, allows the mind to see things more precisely, more carefully, more expansively. We see things as they really are. We're not seeing things as we believe them to be, but we're seeing things in their true nature. When we see things in their true nature, we're not lost in doubts about it. We're not lost in opinions and views and opinions about it. We're not in reaction to it with desire or aversion. We just see this, this is just the way it is. And this capacity to not be deceived by the way things are is called ujukata. Ujukata is another mental factor that arises in every moment of mindfulness. It's called straightness of mind. It is the inability to deceive yourself. Now this inability not to, or not to be able to deceive yourself is important because we have been conditioned in our life by all kinds of 
unskillful views and opinions. And the only way we're going to recognize them as being unskillful, meaning they lead to suffering of one sort or another, is to see for ourselves the way things are. And we can only see for ourselves. You can hear what others have seen for themselves, but we have to see for ourselves our own conditioning. And when we do, we will come to know what of our beliefs, in our behaviors, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our assumptions, leads to suffering. And we'll see which of them leads to the end of suffering. This is the development of wisdom. This is the wisdom that mindfulness, the collected mind, the stable mind, the unified mind, seeing clearly, understands. In each moment, the mind understands this is the way this is and knows, oh, this leads to suffering or this leads to the end of suffering or this isn't suffering. And only we can know for ourselves what of our own mind Thoughts, beliefs, assumptions, emotions, hopes, dreams, aspirations, judgments, which of them lead to suffering or not? Nobody else can tell you what's going on in your mind. And yet, it's so easy to deceive ourselves. We're really good at it. We've learned how from others, how to deceive ourselves, how to have hold on to hopes and dreams and fantasies that will never happen. And we're still seduced by the advertisers that promise happiness if you just buy what they're selling. Somehow, if we can just you know, cobble together enough pleasant sense experiences, we should be happy. It doesn't work that way. I hope you've seen that already. Right? Well, as you practice, you will. You'll come to see, oh, this, this isn't true. This that I've been told or sold isn't true. It doesn't work for me that way. Something else works for me. And only you can find that out for yourself. That's wisdom. Knowledge is what you get from other people's wisdom. They've, they've done the work. Some of them have done the work. They've seen, this is the way it is for me, and they can share it with you. But you can't just kind of take that on as your own. That's just knowledge. It's not your own empirical experience being understood through the purified mind of awareness and a unified mind that understands and sees things as they really are. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is the unfolding of your own knowledge based on your direct experience of your life without delusion. There's lots that can be said about wisdom. And there's lots of people writing books about the view from the place of wisdom. But that's their view. That's their wisdom. For you to kind of, kind of inhale their knowledge doesn't make it wisdom for you. It just makes it more views and opinions to attach to or to reject. But in your own practice, in the, in the observation of your own heart, you cannot lie to yourself. You cannot deceive yourself when you recognize this causes pain. This causes suffering. 
That's wisdom. That's the journey we're on. Taking the time, having the aspiration, making the effort, connecting with our life moment to moment, unifying our mind, seeing the way it is for us. Not how it is for you, for someone else. And we're not trying to confirm anything that anybody else has written. That's not, that's not the road. That's not the path. It's what's going on right here in our own heart. And as we grow in wisdom, we come out of delusion, we come out of confusion, our faith grows. We, we see for ourselves this practice works. We see for ourselves the truth of the teachings. As we practice them, faith grows. We make more effort, more continuity of remembering to recognize the present moment, more collectedness of mind. The more collected mind sees things more precisely, understands things more deeply. This is more wisdom. And, when, and as you gain wisdom, as you grow in wisdom, your faith will also increase. Your confidence in, I now know how to practice. I know the path of practice. I know the results of practice. And there's no end. This is the way that these five spiritual faculties guide the unfolding of our practice. And they're available in every moment of our life. We just have to keep our spiritual aspiration in mind. You know, when you go shopping, when you, go, when you figure out what you're going to do on Friday night, Saturday night, next month, next year, what is it you're going to do with your life? Don't forget your spiritual aspiration. There is nothing more interesting than using Dhamma in your daily life. Sayadu Tejaniya says. People don't use the Dharma that much in daily life because they don't know the quality, the value, and the inherent worth of the Dharma. Someone who really practices in their daily life will know the value of this practice as something they can't live without. Therefore, you should think of your home as your retreat center. Because when your understanding of the true nature of things grows, wisdom, your values in life will change. And when your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more, and this will help you to do well in life. So let's sit for a moment and let the words settle into our hearts. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more, and this will help you to do well in life. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. So there's a half hour for
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.